You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Scott Grafton, who is a professor of neuroscience and also a neurologist, practicing neurologist at UC Santa Barbara. He's also the author of Physical Intelligence, the science of how the body and mind guide us each other through life. Welcome, Scott. Well, thanks for having me. I look forward to this. Well, look, I think it's been a long time since people were kind of strict dualists. I mean, we have to go back a couple centuries to probably find people who would defend a strict dualist position. I think we're all kind of mind-body people now, and, and we're really acutely aware of how the body influences our mind and vice versa, and that these are kind of almost fictional categories that we use to kind of make sense of things conceptually. But I think there's just still so much that can be discovered in this area. And in your book, you kind of walk through a whole bunch of, I mean, it's very wide ranging, a bunch of different concepts about how the body shapes our mind. And I think that as, as organisms, you know, we had bodies before we had the kinds of minds that we currently have. And so it's no surprise that our way of thinking, the bulk of our cognition is probably occupied with this baggage that we carry around. We can bounce around on all the different kind of insights and studies, but one of the things that I found really interesting was this claim that when you're kind of moving through the world, and, and this is sort of how we learn about the world and we learn about our body through movement, when we move through the world, we are actually spending the bulk of our attention on the objects that we're moving around. Now, I remember hearing about eye tracking studies that always said, oh, you spend all your time looking at hands and looking at eyes and looking at noses and all that. And then I realized, well, I bet every one of those was probably done with someone in a seated position <laughs> with a laptop in front <laughs> yeah. of them. So no wonder, right? Like, and yet you're saying that in, in the real world, like out in the field, our attention is really directed to the physical environment. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's some really cool studies now where you, you use these highfalutin eye tracking systems that are both mm -hmm. filming the external world and then also where your eyes are looking into that world. And you can just... It's kind of tedious coding work for some poor undergraduates or research assistants, but they go through and just mark where you're looking, you know, over an hour walking outdoors. And so much of it is just terrain evaluation. You really notice this when you contrast that with state-of-the-art robots mm -hmm. who don't do this at all. They just go and then they have fancy legs, like goat legs mm -hmm. that keep them from falling over, but they're not using that knowledge of the surfaces of the world at all to sort of improve their performance, whereas we just do this automatically. Yeah. And a lot of the book, I think you comment on the difficulties that we've had in building out artificial intelligence models for robots and attempting to replicate these fairly standard, simple, or at least seemingly simple operations. And I think you're referring to what Boston Dynamics, Big Dog. Big Dog and Little Dog. And there's, a, there's just an endless version of them now. They've got so many of these things. They're all really cool. I'm not questioning just how unbelievable these robots are if you take it at face value. But then if you just say, well, what would you need to add to really not make them human-like, but to make them really function in natural environments? A big part of it is just integrating how we see and perceive surfaces of the world with how our body moves. Gravel, walking on a gravel path versus a concrete path or a 
a rocky path, just simple things like that. It's all that's missing. And that's really hard to do, actually, computationally. Those, those are not easy problems. Right. You talk about this, the talus, right? And I didn't know this term. What I found really interesting about the book is that the entire book is animated by a series of anecdotes about your hiking life. And so it sounds to me that you're quite the hiker. You spent a lot of time actually interacting with these surfaces, these very interesting surfaces. And I'm not nearly as an experienced a hiker as, as you are, but I enjoy hiking. And I was wondering, to what extent did your interest in hiking get stimulated by your academic interests, or was it sort of the other way around? I grew up sort of going into the wild, especially the high Sierra and wilderness, both with groups and climbing peaks and mountaineering and high altitude climbing and all that sort of stuff. And that's a world of surfaces, glaciers and ice and rock and cliffs mm -hmm. and ropes, technical stuff or not so technical stuff. I can tell you, though, that one of the most profound experiences I had as a kid was one of my mentors who was teaching me how to do all this. He was teaching a high school class and he made everybody hike alone for half an hour. And for most people, that's the first time they'd actually ever been alone outside, let's say, their bedroom or something like that, right? So you're in the middle of nowhere, middle of the wild, now going alone, right? And it's just pure existential reality. This is it, right? This is how people lived for most of evolution, is being that kind of skill, just moving through terrain by yourself and gaining confidence in that is really profound and not enough of us experience that i mean everybody should spend just 10 minutes walking off trail <laughs> just you know go to point Reyes or wherever whatever national park you like just go off trail for a bit it's a totally different experience well i think we, we might talk about some of the skill building aspects of this type of behavior but we have been doing this for a long time you you actually mentioned otzi hopefully you you won't wind up like Otzi if you do go out alone, unsupervised in, in the woods. He got shot in the back, right? Right. <laughs> so he's probably running from someone else's village and got shot in the back with an arrow. So found an arrow in his shoulder. I read a speculative book about Otzi a couple of years back. It was, it was interesting. But that notion of threat, you begin the book with that, right? You start with this narrative of how you're sleeping in the woods or you're lying down about to sleep in the woods and even though you're inside of a tent, you seemingly have this sense of the terrain around you and you have kind of a focus, like a, a dispersed focus that is attuned to anything that could potentially be like a threat, right? So the snapping of a twig would presumably alert you to some kind of danger and you'd probably be able to kind of triangulate the location of that based on this sensibility that you have, which is very deeply rooted and, and very natural. And you talk about the ability to take that wide attention and, and move it to something that's more narrow, both spatially and, and conceptually. And you talk about how we've been searching for some kind of master switch or a module that controls this, but it's much, much more complicated than that. What about focus and attention? And to what extent can, say, doing something like sports or going in, in the woods help people to kind of develop this better control of their attention? I drive my colleagues who are experts in attention crazy because I say, you guys are always only studying half the process. They're studying how we focus in, right? It's always the zoom lens, the snap of the twig. Boom, you zoom in on that sound. And they never consider the opposite, which is there are conditions where you really have to be open, 
right? Your senses have to be open to everything around you. And great athletes in field sports know this. You know, I talk about Wayne Gretzky, there's soccer players. Just, just think of anybody who has to be situationally aware in a really dynamic environment of everything around them and how they train themselves to, to open up to that experience. And certainly being in the wild by yourself kind of triggers you into that mode because you can just like, what's going on around me, right? You just naturally kind of become vigilant to just a huge space around you. And I don't think there's any special trick to doing it other, other than just doing a lot of it and being in situations where it's a natural outcome of what you're trying to do. People try to substitute it. I talk about it in the book. No one evolved to do mindfulness training or meditation. It's like these are very recent human inventions. And so why do we do those, right? What are we trying to get from those? And probably a lot of things, right? But one of them clearly, especially openness, meditation, and mindfulness, a big part of it is just, again, it's this idea of not just focusing on single things, but opening your mind up to experience all around you that's happening. And that makes people more aware, happier, more in tune. We have lots of words for it, but yeah, it's a really positive effect. So flow and mindfulness are sort of alternative, or at least we even use the metaphor, right? One is kind of narrowly focused attention. One is kind of broadly focused attention. And we can think of it as peripheral vision versus the zoom lens. Flow can also be focused, right? Like I know brain surgeons <laughs> or, or vascular surgeons, it'll take them 12 hours to sew up a vessel that's the thickness of a pencil lead, and they're in there, right? <laughs> Flow is the narrowly focused attention, and then mindfulness is the broad attention. Yeah. So I know someone who had a child who was having focus issues and was going to a therapist and paying a lot of money for this therapy, and therapy was basically almost like simulated sports. And then when she took her, her child to actual sports, the need for the therapist kind of went away. Absolutely. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in the book as well on the notion of space. I love that one because... I have a colleague, Lita Cosmides, and she really studies something called intuition blindness, right? So we have lots of intuitions about how our mind works, how the brain ought to be doing things, but clearly we're blind to massive amounts of what's really going on under the hood. And she studies this really more in social anthropologic settings, what drives human interaction. But one of the simplest examples of this sort of in this physical space physical intelligence is the concept of space, right? So we have the intuition that space just exists, right? It's just is, right? It's a given. I'm alive. That's given. Space, it's given. It's not. If I say, what's the space around you? How big is the room you're in? You have to construct that idea of space itself, right? It's this weird thing that well, in physics, you start with three dimensions. You have space, and then you add time to it and make it complicated if you want. But So that's the intuition that it's given, but that's in a mathematical sense it's given. Actually, in a conceptual sense, you always have to cook it up from scratch. And so I talk about patients who have deficits, and they have black holes in space, right? They, have, they can't construct space, and so they, part of the world doesn't even exist for them. So just to make that point, and that comes up over and over in the book, this idea of intuition blindness. There's all these interesting things under the hood that we just sort of think are just the real entities, but they're not. They're things the mind constructs to help us act in the world and move. But I think you also make the point that your experiences will dictate where that blindness is, right? So if you're spending all of your time 
whatever, sitting in a chair, you're going to have a different sense of space than if you're kind of moving around. And I love the example of the um, parkour folks. There's a word for them. I don't I forget the word, but these folks seem to have a much more accurate assessment of the heights of things and the, the distances of things. And I remember Dan Wagner used to have this whole, I remember his whole thing about you adjust your estimate of distances or angles based on the amount of effort that you had to kind of mentally put into the action. Is that related? So I, I didn't include the effort part, but I did include the affordance part. So the affordance is sort of the technical term, and it's that word's been cannibalized a lot of different ways in sort of an academia. But if you go back to the really sort of originalist view, it's how you fit in the world. Now, if you're moving, it means it's how you fit in a dynamic sense. So if you're heading into the grocery store and the electric doors are sliding shut, that's a beautiful affordance problem. Can you make it in time, right? Are you going to get <laughs> clocked? Or elevator doors would be the same, right? So that's a really dynamic mm -hmm. notion of affordance. And it's very flexible based on what you can do. So if you're wearing platform shoes, you have a very different notion of what's possible than if you're not wearing flats. Just the, the height of a chair you can sit on. Or, you know, if you're a parkour and you're used to jumping over fences and vaulting onto roofs and things like that, you have a totally different sense of what you're, how you fit in your environment. Any kind of physical injury modifies it as well. I was talking to um, Barbara Tversky recently, and, and she talks a lot about optic flow. We have like a spatial homunculus in our brain where the things that are closer are seen as being larger than things that are further away or things are more crisp in the immediate vicinity and, and kind of more vague further away. And then as we kind of move through, we're, we're just focusing more and more on the stuff that's closer. I think you mentioned that really world-class athletes are usually kind of looking further yeah. out on the horizon and not paying as much attention. Like when you're, you learn to drive, right? You don't, you say you learn, don't look at the hood ornament, look at the road further out, right? Absolutely. There are a lot of sports where that makes a big difference. That ability, not so much dynamic sports like soccer, where things are just kind of coming and going. Any kind of flat mm -hmm. track ice skating, where you got to cut a curve or race car driving, any, anything where you're just looking an extra three feet ahead can buy you a little bit more speed and you can whip around the corner a little bit better. F1 driving, things like that. No question. And you see it in the eye tracking studies. They're really good drivers or skaters. They're, they're looking a little bit farther down the line. And in a curve, where they put their eyes on the curve, they're not on the curve. They're just inside the curve, right? Their eyes are already anticipating the centripetal force that they're going to experience as they head into the turn. Now, I also like the downhill ski. And, and you mentioned that your skill as a hiker is not necessarily a function. It's really about how much hiking you've done and not sort of what kind of quality of athlete you are. And so you mentioned that downhill skiers, you throw them out into a hiking environment and it doesn't really matter that they're great downhill skiers because right? the contours and the surfaces and the resistance and, and all of that is, is going to be very different. Yeah, you really have to relearn how you relate to that, how you match that environment. You can't jimmy it. You have to do it, right? You know, I have a long thing in there about black ice, right? I can tell you until I'm blue in the face that the sidewalk in front of your house has black ice on it. And you got to be really careful walking on that. And you go, okay, 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 well, fine. You go out there, you got like a 50% chance of falling on your butt because you just have not yet, this season, let's say, walked on it enough to adapt to that those kind of physical requirements. You just don't know them. And you forget them. 
each year. If you expect a black ice and you step on it and it's not ice, then you probably might also fall, right? Like when you get on an escalator that's not moving, is, is that? The fun thing about a book is the amount of miscellany you come up with. So there, there are legions of elevator studies that look exactly at this. They'll do things like virtual goggles where you think the elevator's going at a certain speed or the steps are a certain height and the real one is doing something else and all the ways your body adapts to these incongruencies. Yeah, there's a whole subculture of elevator motor control physiologists. But I think at some point, didn't people believe that there was some innateness? You talk about how, how important it is that the learning takes place, right? Babies are almost designed for... I interviewed this guy, Tom Vanderbilt, and he surveyed a lot of this literature, and he talked about how babies are almost pudgy and, and they have built-in airbags because they're going to be falling so often, right? Yeah, there's some crazy number, yeah, like 14,000 times, you know, before they can walk, and yeah. But they, they don't know innately that they're incapable of going down a particular gradient, and then you mentioned that once they learn it from crawling, it doesn't necessarily transfer over onto to walking. That's right. So there probably are discrete stages going from four to two quadrupedal to bipedal. You just almost have to start over again. But it's really interesting because if you think about robots now and the way we teach robots to walk, they don't do any of this, right? They don't let those robots fall down as a mechanism for learning how to walk. They write in programs so that if they do fall, they get back up. But they're trying to program in already structure of how to walk. And so those robots can walk pretty quickly. But the cost of that is generalization. They can only kind of walk in very specific environments that the mm -hmm. programmer designed them to navigate in. Whereas a kid, they're using reinforcement learning, bottom up, and driven into that kind of learning is the need to explore the whole parameter space. So they're going to try everything right and they're going to fall all over the place but the beauty of that is now they can really generalize they can really adapt and, and generalize their movements to all kinds of conditions that's an interesting question for robotics is will there be a point where they kind of adopt the same kind of strategy so that they can get more generalization out of these things you know most of them are kind of one-trick ponies you talk about reinforcement learning i mean even a lot of the sort of reinforcement learning is very single purpose, right? So you learn how to win AlphaGo, right? But then you have to more or less start yeah. from scratch when you're presented with a totally new game. And I think you're arguing that even bears are able to kind of build on routines or suites of, of actions or sequences that they've developed, that they've learned through previous iterations. You have a great whole narrative about all the different ways that we've tried to confuse <laughs> bears and prevent them from eating our food. I, I hiked the Appalachian Trail yeah. and we just had the throw the old sack over the tree branch, and that, that seemed to work pretty well. But that was a long time ago. I think they've gotten a lot smarter since then. Oh, yeah, no way. I think I talk about Yellow Yellow, a bear in the Adirondacks, like in the northern end of the Appalachian Trail, who, uh, you know, those big canisters, food canisters that backpackers use with the screw-on lids. It's kind of like a giant pill bottle. Yellow Yellow figured out how to open it, <laughs> open them. <laughs> it's just and all the hikers knew it. And, you know, oh, God, we got to get through here. Yellow Yellow is going to steal all our food. So, yeah, they're, they're amazing. And so I think there's a whole chapter in there on learning and motivation. And I want to get to that. But, you know, just this idea of kind of understanding how not to fall. This is such a difficult thing. And old people, I think falling is one of the most 
common injuries that they experience. And so to what extent is, is that a function of them lacking adequate motor control? And to what extent is that about them not really kind of understanding the limitations of their motor control, right? They haven't really adequately learned through maybe experimentation, and then they're kind of caught off guard. You know, it's interesting. Just the other night, I was listening to a neurology podcast, which was sort of the party line view of falling. And they started out with saying, oh, once we learn to walk, it's one of these skills we never forget. It's just like imprinted into us, right? So that's the premise. And so then the only explanation possible in that setting is where you're either blind or your vestibular balance organs off or you're weak, right? Or you can't feel your legs, let's say, because you have a neuropathy or something like that, which is kind of the conventional model. But then you'll look at most of the people who fall, the vast majority of people who are falling, whether young or old, the vision's good, their balance is fine, they don't have a peripheral neuropathy, they're strong. So why are they falling, right? And so what I talk about in the book is actually walking is not hard-coded into you. It is a skill that gets rusty. <laughs> it takes practice. It's a bipedal walking is really tricky, actually, if you think about it. Look at how long it takes a kid to figure out how to do it. It's really tough. And we take it completely for granted, that part of it, that there's slippage. I mean, if I said, okay, you're a really good tennis player. It took you 20 years to learn to play tennis. Now you don't play much. No one's going to be confused if, if your tennis game starts to slip, right? You got to tune it back up. And I think the same applies to walking. And what you see is either people going into environments that they're unfamiliar with, like walking on black ice, or they're getting old and they're getting housebound. They're just walking less, mm -hmm. less stairs, less rough surfaces. And we've created environments that are all super smooth. And so you throw sidewalks and malls and things like this. You throw anybody into a rough, rough surface, you also set them up at risk to fall. So I think all these things kind of come together. So if you, if you wanted to kind of minimize your risk of falling as, a, as an older person, the solution would not be to walk less, but walk more, right? Make some of it on gravel paths in the local park and step over roots and things like this. It's an investment that has risk, but it also has huge benefit. So part of what we're learning is not just about the external environment, but we're learning about our bodies themselves, right? You kind of talk about how this notion of the sixth sense kind of evolved in, in the 19th century with Duchesne and a bunch of these other. Tourette, I think, was one of the characters in, in your history, right? You have a nice little, little history of neuroscience in the old days. And the most common example that I think most people know about is this whole idea of the rubber hand and rubber hand therapy, which is used for people with amputations and so forth. And so you really want to emphasize the fact that this sixth sense is kind of squishy, right? You use the word squishy. What do you mean by squishy? We can extend our bodies with tools. I was talking to Barbara Tversky about somehow we never learned that backpacks are part of our bodies. And, and you have an example of where your backpack kind of caught you up. Why is it that we're so good with, say, tongs when we're doing the barbecue, but we're not very good with the backpacks? I think the squishy idea, well, the sixth sense is really the tool to help you figure out your body schema. Your body schema is your sense of where your three-dimensional body is in space, right? It's not being able to name your finger or telling an elbow from a wrist. It's where am I in space and I'm moving, so I got to keep up with that. And the sixth sense is more information coming in to help you track that. 
And it's primarily muscle, right? When your muscles contract, that's a big tell. My body schema is now moving where I am in three-dimensional space. Where I am is updating. And there are people who don't have sixth sense and they have a real hard time keeping track of where they are. You mentioned this one guy, he had some autoimmune reaction and he had to really be careful because if he picked up a potato in, yeah. in the grocery store, he, he would topple over forward, right? <laughs> yeah, he was super, super dependent on vision. And that's probably why like your tongues, you learn to squish or adjust the shape of your body to incorporate the tongs if you want very quickly if you've got vision to help you. Backpacks out of sight, so you just have to do it through trial and error. So if you're pregnant, mm-hmm. you're not going to like knock somebody over with your belly. What if you're blind though, right? If oh, you're yeah. blind, are you more likely to give it enough time and bump enough things? It'll eventually morph into the right shape. Yeah, that's a very contentious literature. Uh-huh. There was this whole literature where they tried to make the case that pregnant women were having trouble updating their body schema. They couldn't represent this this belly, right? And they were bumping into more things. But then someone finally did the right control and they took a bunch of men and they just stuck backpacks on their bellies. And you basically come up with the same level of errors. So they're both updating. They're just kind of doing a little bit slower than they could in theory. There are all these fun sidebars. I think the study that my all-time favorite study, and this one is really hard to replicate. We've replicated it a few times. Some of it is the Pinocchio effect Jim Lackner did at Brandeis. So the idea is I vibrate a tendon like your biceps tendon, and that makes that tendon go numb. Or the sensors, which is really part of your sixth sense, that becomes less responsive in that tendon. So now you have unopposed tension from your triceps. And so you get the illusion that your hand is now extending. Really simple. You can't do this with like a cheap vibrator you buy at the store. You had a real thumper, this real really high amplitude thumper. You really got to beat on that tendon for a while before you shut it off. And you're blindfolded. So you just have this illusion, your hand's straightening. And now what he does is he has the person touch their nose while they do this. And so now you've got this problem where your arm is extending, but you're still touching your nose. And so there's a couple possibilities. One is you could now Mm. perceive that you have two noses, right? One where you think it ought to be, and then one where you're touching it out in front of you. But you never see that. What you see is the sense that your nose, the tip of your nose is now stretching out in front of you. And that's the squishy part, right? That's where the squishy is. So your body schema, this this construction of where you think you are, is dependent on both touch and the sixth sense and vision. It's just going to do everything it can to make those compatible with each other, even if it creates an illusion. And the rubber hand illusion is a variation of this idea. But I think the Lackner... And he could do it. You can do cone head so he can make your top of your head feel taller. He can go the other way around and squish your head in, squish your face in. Basically, you can do it on any joint in the body. So it's completely malleable. And what's neat about it is it never tears. So it's kind of like this Gumby doll. You can stretch it, bend it any way you want, right? But it never tears. It's always a holistic you. I think that's beautiful, right? That something in design just said, along the way in evolution, just said, all right, there's one you. There's one you in space, right? And we're not going to have arms floating around here. And mm-hmm. we're going to reconcile any kind of discrepancies, even if it makes things seem a little weird. One of the examples you talk about is the astronauts who thought their arms were being amputated by the vanishing of the sun, right? 
So your brain basically can't deal with conflicting information. So it comes up with the most economical. Yeah. Vision rules the roost. You know, most of the time, whatever vision says goes. And so the, that illusion is, you know, every 90 minutes, you've got a sunrise and a sunset when you're out on the space station and these guys are doing extravehicular work and he's kind of hanging on to it with his arms and the sunset comes across. And since there's no dust, you go from brilliant light to total black almost instantly. And so it's covered his arm up. Now his arm's gone, <laughs> right? Because it's in the shadow. And it, yeah, the immediate illusion is, oh my God, I lost my arm. Really interesting, right? That just tells you how powerful vision is at trying to create this, help you create this schema. With amputees, does the existence of a prosthetic of some kind change the phantom limb syndrome? I mean, and you mentioned also how the brain plasticity works where the sensation of your missing hand starts to appear on, on your face somehow. That doesn't seem to line up with the visual visual story, right? Yeah. So I think the visual illusion is very transient. The one in the astronauts, right? That's just like a, almost like a startle. And then they recalibrate and they, they figure it out. Whereas a lot of the phantom limb related yeah. symptoms are really quite persistent. And the easiest sort of parsimonious explanation of phantom limb is you've lost this limb, but your brain keeps constructing a representation that there one ought to be there, right? And you don't have to have sensory input to create a representation. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have a mind's eye. We wouldn't have imagination. You can imagine what certain things feel like without having to feel them, right? That's a given in a human brain. And so now, you can just sort of see that process running amok where you've, you don't have the arm, you don't have the sensation coming in, but you still have a brain creating those sensations. And now it can get confused whether it's the hand that's being represented or the face, or you get crosstalk between different body parts and they can trigger different kinds of illusions. But it just goes all the way back to the idea of space. Space is not a given, space is constructed. The sensation of your arm is not a given, it's a construction. And so you're still making that up without an arm. Well, you talked about people who have various body dysphorias, but people with, say, anorexia, people who perceive themselves to be larger or, or smaller than they actually are. This isn't just a purely abstract thing. Like you, you mentioned that if you have anorexia, you'll actually, you know, kind of turn sideways to get through a fairly, fairly wide door because you think you're bigger than you are. So is there some social elements there? These are not things that you see kind of uniformly distributed across all populations, right? So there's, there's some social construction going on there, right? There are people with certain types of migraine where they, you've got a sweeping wave of cortical depression that runs over the parietal cortex, partially shuts off the parts of the brain that create this schema. And if you do that, then you get all these wild dysmorphias. People feel like they're four feet tall or 10 feet tall or giant heads, little feet, all kinds of weird things. And they'll move. What's interesting is during that migraine, they'll walk and move as if they've got giant feet or you know long legs or short legs. So it'll change their motion, right? So it's this intimate relationship between the schema where you think you are in space and actually how you would move given that. Those are all tied together. So that's kind of interesting. And so then the question is, if you think about somebody like anorexia, to what degree is, is it a problem of something like that, right? Where they really have a body schema that's just calibrated wrong, right? They think they're too big or too small, whatever. 
And what is a social construct? And I think the answer is yes, it's both. It could be both. There's just a lot of papers going back and forth on this. Of course, everybody likes to have a straw man argument and say it can only be one or it can only be the other, but it can be a lot of things. It's a complicated behavioral disorder. But yeah, they do physically move as if their body schema is altered. And there's really good evidence that a lot of eating disorders, particularly in adolescents and teens, are driven by social expectations and those influence the schema as well. So high school athletes, right? They all think they're fat or two thirds of them think they're overweight. They have changes in eating behavior because of that. They have changes in how they move because of that. I think it's both. I wouldn't want to say it couldn't be, but I know far less about sort of the social, how the social world shapes it. Well, you have this great story about when you were trying to catch a trout with a spear and you're referring to this sort of feedback loop that you're, you're going through where you're kind of adjusting on the fly. You know, athletes do this, of course, all the time, and we all do this. And you analogized it to how we need to build rockets and, and other kinds of machinery that can kind of self-adjust. And, and once we try to do it for rockets, we realize how complicated this process actually is. So where are we? You mentioned, go back to the, the robots in terms of building out systems that are capable of, of adjusting as well as we humans can adjust when we're throwing a ball. Are we anywhere close to being as, I mean, when we look at Elon Musk and we see the rocket come back down to earth, I mean, it's pretty impressive. But I think every time you reach for a cup of coffee, you're probably doing something very similar. Absolutely. And yeah, so landing a rocket back onto a deck on a barge in the Pacific Ocean and it's bobbing up and down. I mean, you just think about that. In some ways, a single step is almost harder while you're walking. And the reason is delays, time. What kills you in engineering and, and feedback is delays in figuring out where you are and correcting for that. And the nervous system is slow, right? Just feeling where your leg is, making adjustments based on that sensation. It's slow and it's, you can get behind and make, make errors quite easily. I think I have the example of swinging a tennis racket, right? Or swinging a baseball bat, right? You have so little time if there's a curve on the ball to make any change in your swing, but you can do it actually. And now if you added that much delay to a robot or to Elon Musk's rockets, they'd be crashing every mm -hmm. time. What they have is the luxury of speed in basically speed of light communications through the electronics, super fast computation. So they can get ahead of the problem quicker than a human body can. But when you mentioned this kind of responding on the fly, so, you know, when you're running through the woods across all the rocks and adjusting your, the way you land and the way you leave the rocks, the people who are better at it aren't people who necessarily have better sensors, right? So talk about sensors and actuators and processors. I think you're saying that it's really at the processor level that obviously it helps to have better sensors, and good vision and better actuators, you know, better fast twitch muscles. But really, your argument, this is, this is sort of a processing. Absolutely. And this goes all the way back to Ty Cobb. Can't even remember if I put this in the book, but you know, it's a problem with you. It's a, yeah, like if that was in the 1930s, this Japanese neurophysiologist came to America and he, he was in the 20s and he was able to measure for the first time how fast a nerve conducted. And then they said, well, maybe Ty Cobb's got really fast nerves. That's why he's such a good hitter, right? And that was in the New York Times. They made that claim. And it turns out they didn't adjust for the temperature. And this is like a standard test now by a neurologist measuring nerve conductions because there are diseases that can, can alter this. But 
Turns out his were in the normal range. And we now have since learned you almost never see changes of nerve speed or, or sensitivity out in the periphery. The sensors are the sensors. And yeah, and it's all about the CPU and learning to integrate information and also learning what to use, right? What's the most salient information you need? And that just, again, it takes experience, right? I have a friend, Miguel Eckstein, he's a perceptual scientist, and he does these great experiments where he'll flash a picture up of a scene really briefly and just track where the eyes go. And what he'll do is have like a scene of a New England house on a lawn, but the chimney won't be on the roof, it'll be on the lawn. You barely have time to notice this. Your eyes go right to it, right? It's just like, what the heck's going on there, right? And that's because we have all these priors about where chimneys ought to be. And it's just built in a perception to just generate beliefs about what ought to be there. And you're, a lot of what you're doing is checking for violations. And I think the same is true in, in moving in athletic environments. You're really just learning exactly where you should be looking, what doesn't matter, what's unusual, what's going to most efficiently get me where I need to go. You also talk a bit about wayfinding in the book. And I think this is a fairly well-known, if not well-understood phenomenon, that if you're out in the desert or in the snow and, and you don't have any kind of markers, you're, you're going to have, you're either going to go like in a zigzag fashion or you're going to go in circles. I think going in circles is the, the more common path. So what's going on there? How dense do the clues have to be for someone to kind of figure out a direction and, and where they're going? And why is it that we can't orient ourselves in space in such a way as to go in a straight line? And it's not because one leg is shorter than the other. <laughs> where, <you know. laughs> well, that might be, actually. <laughs> it is for me. Again, it's, if you take any robot is blind and you just have them start walking, <laughs> right? <laughs> just walk, let's say, in the desert. They're going to be very, very sensitive to any kind of internal miscalibration and it's going to get them off course. Again, there will be delays. So it might get off course for a while, then it might reverse. And so it's, it depends how you program it, how much zigzagging it's going to do. But it's very hard without any kind of external reference at all to stay in a straight line. How do you know you're going straight? Any error and you're off that line and motor behavior is noisy. It's sloppy. There's basically bipedal and kind of stumbling around all the time anyway. So we're not really designed to walk in a perfectly straight line as a default. It's hard to find environments where there aren't any clues at all, right? I mean, there's great books on wayfinding. There's one called The Lost Art of Navigation. It's fantastic. Just talking about you know, just a little breeze on your cheek, right? That can, that can totally provide an anchor reference, you know, an azimuth relative to where you're trying to go that can carry you a long way, or it can be the ripples in the middle of the ocean. You know, just think of Pacific, Micronesia and Polynesians, you know, going across the Pacific a thousand years ago, just looking at the ripples of the waves. So any little clue, we can zoom in on it and leverage it. But without them, we know we're going to go in the circle. A German study where they take people out in the woods in Germany on a foggy day, within about a kilometer or two, everybody's spinning circles. It's pretty cool. Or in the desert at night, you can do it as well. To me, the most interesting aspect of the book is sort of came at the end, and in part because, you know, I'm an economist. And so, you know, once you start talking about trade-offs, right, that's when I get all excited. And you, know, you talk about the cerebellum, and I think you, you mentioned that people can live perfectly normal lives without 
big chunks of their cerebellums or cerebella, whichever the Latin word is. And so it's a wonder, well, what do we need all this extra baggage for? And you talk a lot about how regulating, this is really kind of, it's our efficiency mechanism for locomotion and for a whole bunch of other things, which maybe in today's world, it doesn't really matter as much because for kind of nutrition constrained or, or whatever, but this is a super, super important part of what most organisms live and need in order to survive, right? I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and then maybe we can get into this idea of kind of effort. That to me, the idea of effort regulation was just fascinating. Yeah. Neurology always learned that you need your cerebellum to smooth out your coordination. Again, you've got all these feedback circuits with delay and you're trying to get all the muscles to coordinate and you don't want to oscillate. And when you see people with cerebellar damage, acutely, they'll have oscillations and erratic movement. And so you can see how it, it smooths out and optimizes any kind of motor behavior. But then it goes farther. It's all about adaptation. It's about not just smoothing it out, but optimizing it along a, a number of efficiency sort of dimensions. And the one that blows my mind, I just love these studies. It's so simple. I put you on a treadmill. It's going at a certain pace. The belt's going at a certain speed. And there's a metronome. So you got to walk march along to the pace of that metronome in two steps you will have chosen a stride length that's optimal in terms of wasting as little energy as possible i mean how does it know to do that right now i speed the belt up mm -hmm. boom or i change the metronome you'll just adjust or i make you do a certain stride length now you you pick a cadence that's efficient mm -hmm. So like that calculus right i mean that's like that's a perfect economics calculus right you've got these three things and we have no idea, no idea how it's doing it. I mean, we guess, I mean, it's probably the cerebellum, and, but what sensor is it using to figure that out? That's what we don't really know yet. It's not something simple like glucose being consumed or oxygen being used. It's something sneakier. And so that's kind of work in progress. Our lab now has, has really gotten into sort of this interface of decision-making, coordination, effort, skill, all these things really. We study these in isolation, but in the real world, these are all tied in interacting with each other in terms of trade-offs. And so coming up with tasks, it's a little bit like, you know, you're hiking along or walking along and there's a little brook you want to jump across. There's a reward because it's a shortcut. There's a cost if you fall in. There's mm -hmm. how much skill do I have? How tired am I? How much effort is it going to take? All these things come in at just a simple little decision. Should I just jump over this brook? But the idea is that, that fatigue is kind of a, it's an informational cue, right? It's almost saying, hey, you know what? We've decided on your behalf that additional effort isn't worth it, right? And we've done the cost benefit. And so I guess the message is that high performance athletes have figured out how to say no, to like veto that decision that was made on their behalf by their bodies and, and say, no, you're wrong. You didn't talk about the book, but I remember seeing this experiment where they would have people ride a bicycle next to a, a video of themselves riding a bicycle that was the speed of which was increased by like 5%. And this enabled them to actually, or why do we have these rabbits, like the most recent marathon guy who beat the world record, he had a whole series of these what they call rabbits who would run alongside of him and, and that enabled him to run faster than he ever thought he could ever run because he kind of tricked himself into thinking he wasn't as tired as, as he would have thought he was tired, right? Yeah. 
And so I kind of have a hand-wavy evolutionary explanation, which is given our circumstances over the first 50,000 years of evolution, we're designed to hedge our bets. And so we hold a lot in reserve, right? That's just a design principle. It's like, I always want to keep the gas tank a third full, right? And so I'm not going to blow out all the gaskets. And so I need a mechanism to hold back. So creating an emotion, which we call fatigue, is a really good way to do that, right? In some ways, it's just an illusion or it's not an illusion, it's just an emotion. And yeah, you could train yourself to override it. And it's really hard to do. It really hurts, but you can do it. Now, that's not to say you can't blow out all your gaskets as well. I mean, sprinters do and they get lactate buildup and things like that. But for 99% of people who get fatigued doing sports or going out and doing things, they're not redlining their lactate or anything like that. They're just having a, it's an emotion that's getting cooked up saying you, you've done enough, take a break. Right. And so if the reward is sufficiently large, then you'll overcome this. In the book, you have this story about trying to really power through a hike on, on the way back. And, and then you talk about people with Parkinson's. My understanding of Parkinson's was one of the reasons why they treat it with dopamine is because it's about the reward system in some way. And, and you say that the basal ganglia is, is involved. And is it really that there's not enough perceived reward to power through? And there's ways that you can potentially manipulate the reward system to kind of reduce some of the effects of Parkinson's? This needs to get granular to think about it correctly, but there are a couple of distinctions. One is tonic versus phasic dopamine release. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of this general tonic amount you have in your body and the Parkinson's patients lose that. And they also lose the pulsatility of dopamine that's used to really tag specific rewards to actions you just did, right? You know, I'm in a certain situation, I do an action, I got a reward, I need to reinforcement learning, I need to tie those together. What we're talking about here is a little bit different. It's more this tonic amount, and it's really, you're, you're doing a cost estimate. How much vigor do I throw into what I'm doing? That too will be related to rewards, right? But it's kind of on a different time scale. How much oomph am I putting into action? And that gets really disrupted at them. And so they will undershoot relative to what the context says they ought to be doing. And you can change the context and trick them, trick them into making essentially a normal looking movement by thinking they need to make a really big movement, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just movement itself. It's this estimate of how much oomph do I need to put in given the context. And clearly you need dopamine to do this. But that's a little bit different than the moment to moment dopamine mm -hmm. signaling we use to learn. Well, maybe your next book will be called Oomph. It's a great book. <laughs> I think the speculations that you have on the science of Oomph and putting in that extra energy for reward, that, that whole part I just found super fascinating. And I hope you're, you're able to yeah. pursue that some more. So Scott, really appreciate you joining me today and look forward to your move to the Bay Area. Perhaps I'll see you up here sometime. So great. everybody check it out. Physical Intelligence, fascinating book, unputdownable. Thanks a lot, Scott. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.